Thank you very much. Kids, Kids Connection is happening. So pre-K and kindergartners, you can uh, make your way toward room three. There will be some happy people there waiting on you. I know it's awfully happy in here right now, but there will be happy people in there as well. All right, a few Valentine's Day jokes for you. A young lady said this to the boy wanting to be her valentine. She said, you need to know for medical reasons that I cannot be your valentine. The boy said, really? Can you tell me what it is? She said, yes, you make me sick. (laughs) Two antenna met on a roof, fell in love, and got married. Their wedding ceremony wasn't fancy. Their reception, however, was excellent. Some of you didn't get it. It's funny. Um, If it's not Valentine's Day and you see a man in a flower shop, you can probably start up a conversation by asking, so what did you do? (laughs) A Cub Scout found a frog that said to him, kiss me and I will become a beautiful princess. The boy studied the frog and then put it in his pocket. Hey, the frog croaked. How come you didn't kiss me? The boy said simply, I'd rather have a talking frog than a princess any day. So why did the banana go out with the prune? Because it couldn't get a date. That's a good one. Last one. A boy mustering up every ounce of courage he had, he asked his biggest crush the big question. Do you have a date for Valentine's Day? Yes, the girl said. It's February 14th. Which that's today. It's February 14th. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to be reading from verse 13 here in just a moment. But by way of review, we've been working through the book of 1 Peter. We're about midway through this first chapter. And as we've worked through the opening 12 verses, you'll remember that I said in verses 3 through 9, Peter, he magnificently describes your experience with salvation. There, Peter focused on the full range of salvation, or what I've also referred to as the tenses of salvation. He said, this is what happened to you in salvation past. This is what's going to happen to you in salvation future. And you need to know what God is doing right now, he's saving you. He's bringing salvation to your present as well. Those six or seven verses are just a gloriously encouraging group of spirit-inspired thoughts. And then in verses 10 through 12, Peter unpacks the greatness of salvation. He points out the objective greatness of salvation evidenced by three primary things. First, you remember he shows that salvation was the great theme of the prophet's study. So the Old Testament prophets who who prophesied of the grace that would come, they made careful search. They looked into the very salvation that had been revealed to them, and they did this in order to understand what person and what time the Spirit of Christ within them was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They looked into it deeply. So salvation to them is great because it is the primary theme of the prophet's study. These great men, they sought to know what person, what time, the details of everything that they wrote. Secondly, Peter says your salvation is objectively great because it's at the core of the apostles' preaching. 
says there in verse 12, that that which was revealed to the prophets has now been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel. That's a phrase. That's the phrase used there. Announced through those who preached the gospel. It was the, the apostles who faithfully preached the gospel, who wrote the gospel, established gospel doctrine and teaching, and, and the church would be built then on their faithful gospel work. So the theme of the prophet's study, the theme of the apostles' preaching, and then finally, in those verses, the theme of the angel's interest. At the end of verse 12, Peter says that the angels long to look into the greatness of salvation. The angels who we human beings, we tend to revere and marvel at when we see them in Scripture, they actually marvel at us. They can't stop gazing at what God has done to save us. What a great salvation. All the time, it says, the angels of God, they look at our salvation and they marvel at God's love for us. The love that we sang about this morning in that great hymn, the love of God, the angels can't get over it. Can you get over it? They can't get over it. So pair all of that in verses 3 through 12 what was, with what was also introduced back in verses 1 and 2. And there it says that we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that we're sanctified by the work of the Spirit, and that is done that you may be then obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Gather all of that together, those 12 verses, and you see that Peter's desire on the front end of this letter is to anchor your heart and mind so deeply in the glory of your salvation that its truth will serve as the basis of everything else he's going to say in the letter. And then that ultimately the truths that he shares about salvation will be the basis for everything else in your life. Have you ever asked the question, what defines you? Have you ever asked that? Seriously, what defines you? You know what? It's not your sin. Your sin doesn't define you. It's not your vocation or your title or your biggest mistake. It's not your motherhood or your fatherhood or your singleness or your widowedness or your divorcedness. None of that defines you. None of that serves as the basis of who you are. What defines you? What defines you is that you're radically loved and protected and saved and known and redeemed by God. That defines you. That's who you are. And you know what? That's verses 1 through 12. Peter says... I want to stake and nail down your identity. Yes, you're exiles. Yes, you're in suffering. But you're the elect people of God. And there's a distinction placed on you that's unmatched. Not in the world, folks. In the universe. So now then we come to verse 13. At the beginning of verse 13, there's a very definite shift in Peter's thought. Verse 13 marks sort of a hinge point in this book. And I say that because all of the verbs in the first 12 verses are in the indicative, which means, that mean, which means they are statements of fact. But beginning of verse 13, they begin to be imperative, which that means they turn into commands. So as you read First Peter, the facts are stated in verses 1 through 12. Those are the indicatives. And now, now we come to the commands or the imperatives. But as we get into this, I need to warn you of something. One of the great confusions in Christian teaching is the confusion of indicatives and imperatives. 
I'm going to give you my best example of this. It's in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul is making a point about the gospel, and he's relating it to marriage. And in verse 23 of chapter 5, he says very famously, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, very often, I've heard that verse preached to husbands in a way that says, husbands, you need to be the head of your wife. You need to take spiritual leadership in the home. You need to take the lead, be the head. Problem is, that's not what the verse says. The verse is not an imperative. It's not a command. It's an indicative. It's a statement of fact. The husband is the head of the wife. Now, the husband can be a good head or a bad head, but the indicative mood in this verse is not a command to the husband. It's telling us what is true about the marriage relationship, that by God's good design, the husband is the head, just as Christ is the head of the church. So husbands, the word to you in Ephesians 5.23 is not be the leader. The message to you is you are the leader, and you can either lead like Jesus by actively serving and laying down your life for your wife, or you can lead in a dozen different ways that are nothing like Jesus. But either way, you're leading because you're the head. You see the difference? Indicatives, imperatives? Good, because that difference is very important to remember as you take in the first chapter of Peter's letter. In verses 1 through 12, he has supplied the indicatives of your salvation. That you are saved by God's mercy and grace, that your inheritance is kept in heaven for you, that your life is guarded and protected by God's great care, and none of that is you. None of that is your doing. None of that you accomplished or earned yourself. It's all God. It's all Jesus. You don't add a single bit of worth to your salvation. The only thing you bring to your salvation is the sin. That's it. But, that doesn't mean the New Testament is silent about works and obedience. That doesn't mean the New Testament is without commands for you and I, the believer. The real tension of the New Testament is that we are saved undeniably by God's grace. We can't do anything to earn it. We can't do anything to lose it. But at the same time, we are saved by a grace, and that same grace compels us to then live like saved people. That grace empowers us to live like we should in the first place. So alongside the great indicatives, there's also a great deal of imperative in the New Testament. And that imperative is not to be avoided. It's not to be confused. We already know that he has saved us. The electing foreknowledge of God, placing us in the righteousness of Christ, that's what saves us. And so that means these exhortations that I'm about to read, these commands, they flow out of the great privilege that comes with receiving that good gift. So let's read this together. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'll begin in verse 13, I'll read to verse 16. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is God's word. All right, so first word of the passage. 
the word therefore. Whenever that word shows up in Scripture, we always have to see what it is therefore. And it, obviously you've heard that little axiom, and you know that a therefore is always pointing to the preceding material. And in First Peter, the preceding material is a condensed, holistic description of God's work in salvation. I just spent 10 minutes describing that. And what Peter is wanting his wonderful treatise on salvation to do, he's wanting it to compel believers toward hope and toward holiness. Those are the two major points in your outline, hope and holiness. Let's first look at hope. The grammatical heart of this first verse, verse 13, is the second half of the verse. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what that that, that verse means is this willfully, so not emotionally or or, or casually, but willfully hope in everything that God has promised in Christ. And I feel like I've said this a half a dozen times the last few months, but I'm going to say it again. Biblical hope is not just wishful thinking. It's not sort of this uncertain desire. Biblical hope is certain confidence in the promises of God. Certain confidence in the promises of God. It's the Christian's attitude toward the future. One commentator referred to hope as future faith. He pointed out that that Paul's favorite word is probably faith, and Peter's favorite word is probably hope. Faith is more applicable in the present. Hope is more directed toward the future. It's absolutely trusting God with what is to come, with what He has promised really with who he is and his integrity to accomplish the things that he said he's going to accomplish. And I use that word or that adverb willfully because so much of our worldly hoping is at the mercy of how we feel. We have a phrase to match the despair that often hijacks our hearts. We say, you know, I feel hopeless. You guys ever say that? If you feel hopeless, step out of your feelings, step out of your current condition, and willfully set your hope on grace. Grace is just another word for salvation. The salvation Peter's been talking about for 12 verses, set your hope on it, and not just a little bit of your hope. Don't just apportion some hope hope toward salvation and then put the rest of your hope toward this week's stock performance or next week's sales numbers or next month's weather forecast or whatever else you put your hope in. Set your hope, what's it say? Fully on the grace. You know what fully means in the original language? Fully. Completely. Just like like you, you, you you are setting your full weight on that chair that you're sitting in right now. Set your full hope on the grace that is your salvation. But then the text tells us something interesting about this grace upon which you hope. It says, it says it will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is that exactly? The revelation of Jesus Christ. That, that is the exact phrase that opens the book of Revelation. Which is what? What is the book of Revelation? It's a book unfolding the future culmination of redemptive history. It's a book that describes the astonishing, wonderful visions of Christ that are associated with his glorious return. Which means believers, you and I, we are to live in view of Christ's second coming. 
In hope, we look forward to that day when Christ will return for his people to roar at us and to glorify us, to finally perfect us and to separate us from all of our sin and all suffering, again, to culminate our salvation. And so just as your election was brought to you, and just as your justification was brought to you, and just as your sanctification is brought to you, so this glorification will also be brought to you. You don't achieve it. It is accomplished for you and brought to you by Jesus Christ. Your duty is to fix your hope fully upon it. To which you're like, how? How do I successfully do that? Well, the passage tells you, gives you a couple of angles at it. As I said, the main verb is set your hope. But there are two participles. Participles in the Greek always modify the main verb. So here we look at these participles that modify the main verb, and they are prepare your minds for action and keep sober. That's how you fix your hope. Those participles modify the main verb. Prepare your mind for action. We set our hope by preparing our mind. The King James says it a little bit differently. It's a helpful picture, though. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. You're like, what does that mean? It's kind of a strange phrase. It simply means to tie something together that's loose. And particularly in in ancient times, it was used to refer to gathering up your robe. Right? We don't really wear robes today, at least not outside of the house, but they did then. And if you wanted to move in a hurry, you didn't just start running with your robe flying all over everywhere. You had some kind of sash or belt, and, and you would cinch it down, and you would take the corners of the robe, and you'd pull them up through the sash so that then you could move quickly. There was nothing to trip over. There was nothing to hinder your movements. Remember back to Exodus chapter 12, and you remember that God He had told his people that they were going to go out of Egypt. And as they're preparing to leave Egypt, they're they're eating the Passover. And he says to them in, in Exodus 12, verse 11, Now you shall eat in this manner, with your loins girded and with your sandals on your feet. In other words, you're ready to move. You're prepared. You're you're ready to go. That's the same idea that Peter's connecting this to. Fix your hope on the grace that is to come. And at any moment... Because Christ could come at any moment, be ready to go, be ready to move. Let there be nothing here that holds you. Don't be so preoccupied with the stuff of earth that you're not ready to go. One commentator put it this way, he said, preparing your minds for action is pulling together the loose ends of your mind. So pull your thoughts together, said another way, discipline your thoughts. Let me ask you this. What do you think about when you don't have anything else to think about? When you just let your mind wander, where does it go? Does it go to sex? Does it go to your investments? Does it go to credit card debt or your health? Or where where does it go? Pull together those loose ends. Discipline your thoughts so the impulse of your mind is to hope in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said, you can't control the birds flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. Which means, yeah, sure, there's all kinds of thoughts flying by. You know what? You can be disciplined enough from keeping them out. 
Is pornography use the thing that's keeping you from pulling your mind together so that you can hope fully in Jesus Christ? If it is, get in an accountable relationship so that you can discipline, you can pull together that part of your thought life. Is negativity and criticism, is that your mind's default mode? Are you more aware of the faults of others than your own faults? Pull together those loose ends. Does jealousy own much of your thinking? Has unforgiveness and resentment towards someone taken up permanent residence in, in, in your mind? Is your weight and calories and exercise and movement, you know, nothing wrong with being healthy, but do your hopes in that diminish a complete hope in the saving grace of Jesus Christ? Prepare your mind. Roll up the sleeves of your mind, so to speak. Because everything you feel and everything you act upon, it first enters through your mind. Which means if you let your mind drift, your life will drift. A fixed hope starts with a prepared mind, a girded up mind. So look at the second participle there. Keep sober in spirit. So first he says, tie down the loose ends of your mind so you can concentrate on the hope that is in the grace to come. Secondly, keep sober. Now, nafo, the word for sober, means literally not to get drunk. But Peter here is using the term very broadly. He's exhorting them not to be intoxicated by the world. Sober-mindedness is is the idea of spiritual steadfastness, spiritual self-control. It's clarity of mind, being in charge of your priorities so that they're not the world's priorities. You're not drinking what the world's drinking. A balanced life that is not intoxicated with the various sort of allurements that the world around you is constantly offering and putting in front of your face. It's a disciplined life is what it is. Darren Patrick, I read him this week, he said, to be sober-minded is to not let, the, uh, not let your emotions rule your life. And it's not because emotions are bad. Emotions are good. I'm not anti-emotions. It's just that your emotions should be driving, excuse me, I should say, it's just that your emotions should be driven by your mind and not the other way around. So he says, look, tie together the loose ends of your mind and live a disciplined life. Maintain moral decisiveness, mental alertness, self-control, rather than the reckless, irresponsible, self-indulgent behavior that characterizes so much of our world today. Fix your hope on salvation and the return of Christ by having a mind that is ready for action and a sobriety that keeps you thinking clearly and with good judgment at all times. So that's hope. What about holiness? Second thing our salvation compels us toward is holiness. Verse 14, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be holy. Second outflow of considering your salvation is holiness. And may I suggest to you, hope produces holiness. Hope actually produces holiness. 1 John 3, 3, he that has this hope in him. You know the rest of the verse? purifies himself. What's the hope? It's the hope in Jesus Christ. It's the looking to Jesus Christ. It's the resting in Jesus Christ. If you have that hope in you, 
It purifies you. You live in hope. You live in holiness. You live every moment with your mind captive, fixed on the grace that is to come, anticipating the return of Christ. If that's the focus and the longing and the anticipation of your life, it's going to produce holiness. Look at verse 14. It opens as obedient children, which is a great statement. And its most accurate translation should be as children of obedience. As children of obedience. Which means it's not so much that obedience is an adjective to modify children, as obedience is sort of the mother of children. It's that you, as a believer in Jesus, you are born of obedience now. You you derive your character from obedience. You derive your nature from obedience. Obedience is the parent whose image you bear. Obedience characterizes your life. That's the mark of a believer in Jesus. And he says, since that is your pattern, then it makes sense for you to be holy. Since you're obedient children, or literally the children of obedience, be holy. That's the main verb in verse 14 and 15. In all your behavior, be holy. How do you do that? How do you get to that point? You're like, be holy. Is this really serious? Do you know me? Well, just like in verse 13, we have some participles that modify be holy. First participle, be not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't act like you used to act. Don't act like you did when you were children of disobedience. The word conformed, by the way, is the identical word used in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world. It's the same word, same phraseology. Did you ever conform anything? Maybe some of you are into clay and pottery and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about like with a sledgehammer or, you know, something really therapeutic, right? You got a piece of metal. It needs to bend one way so another piece of metal can come and fit upon it. You just bang at it and bang at it. And sparks fly, and in time, the sweat flows, but ultimately the thing is conformed. The Bible gives you two options regarding conformity. Do you realize that? Two options. You can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what Romans tells us. Or you can be conformed to this world and the passions of your former life. My point is, you are going to get beat on either way. There is no way out of being conformed. There is no way out of the beating. Kids, you can relate to that at times, right? There's no way out of the beating. There's no way out of conformation. The world will shape you, and it will hurt. Or God and His grace will shape you. And you know what? It may hurt. He says, don't act like you did before you were saved. Don't be driven by lusts as as you were before you were saved. You're you're no longer ignorant lusters. You're, You're children of obedience. You're transformed. Behave that way. Then Peter gives the standard of holiness, verse 15. But like he who, was, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your behavior. So who called us? God called us. Our holy God called us. The negative in Peter's command here is don't act like you used to act. The positive is act like God. After all, he's the one, Peter says, who called you. 
He called you. That, by the way, is what theologians refer to as an effectual call. Every reference to the call to salvation in the epistles of the New Testament is an effectual saving call. It's a call which is the result of the sovereign work of God. It's an effectual call to salvation. If God purposes to call you to himself, he will succeed in his purposes. He accomplishes all that pleases him. It pleased him to call you, and you came when he called. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, sitting in this room, you have been called. That's not a word we only apply to people in the ministry. Oh, God called me there. God called me here. No, we've all been called. We've all been called, and we've been called into relationship with God. And, And by the very fact that He has called us, there is the very fact of our response. So the very God who called you to salvation, who called you to be his child of obedience, who called you to be holy, you're to be like him. But again, you've been called by his power. Grace precedes demand. You see that? Grace precedes demand. He's called you to this. You're not mustering up this energy. You're not mustering up this strength. This is his calling on you. Verse 16, be holy as I am holy. Peter reaching back into the Old Testament using the material found in Leviticus and other places. Holiness. Remember, we talked about the word sanctifying back in verse 2. That that, that word shows up, sanctification in verse 2. It's from the same word as the word holy that's sitting in front of us here. And it means to be set apart for God. For God's exclusive use. That's what it means. So let me ask you, is your life holy? Not perfect. Don't go there. This isn't saying perfect. This isn't a command to be perfect. None of us are perfect. This isn't demanding sinless perfection. We won't be made perfect until the appearing of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. When that happens, we all will be. But this isn't saying be perfect. This is saying be set apart as God is set apart. We can, you and I, as believers in Jesus, we can be characterized as set apart, as sanctified and holy and clearly used for a different purpose than the lost people that we are often around. Does everything you do indicate that you belong to God? Are you set apart? Are you holy? Because you have to understand that calling is going to be pulling you away from sin. Because when you sin, you know what? You you don't sin against a creed. You don't sin against an institution. You don't sin against an expectation. You don't sin against a a, a set of rules. The Bible makes it clear. When you sin, you sin against a holy God. Psalm 51, David looking at the horror of his own sin with Bathsheba and the murder of his husband Uriah, or her husband Uriah. And what does he cry out in Psalm 51? Against you and you only, God, have I sinned. You know what? People in your life, they may never know of your sin. People in this church or, or in your home, they may never be aware of your sin. It doesn't matter. You, you, you've sinned against God. You've sinned against a holy God. 
The language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 is, is stunning. He says this, he says, if you're a believer, if you're a believer and Christ is in you and you join yourself to a prostitute, you join Christ to that prostitute. That's a staggering thought. If Christ lives in you, you don't go anywhere without him. And it's an, an unfathomable affront to your Savior to be dragged into sin. Be set apart. Don't drag the Savior in to sin. You elect exiles. How do you get through this life? How do you make it to the life prepared and kept for you? You set your hope on grace and you be holy. And then next week you'll look at honoring the Father. But remember, obedience to these imperatives, to these commands, this does not achieve salvation for you. Salvation is achieved in Christ. We look to the indicatives when we're thinking about salvation. But these imperatives, these are what we've compelled now to live out as people who have been loved and called and destined for the inheritance that waits for us. Some of you maybe, maybe some of you, big room, enough people here, Perhaps God is calling you today to put your trust in Christ. Maybe you've thought it's about your performance for a really long time, about what you do to make yourself worthy. Maybe you just thought, man, I'm not good enough to accomplish this. I'm not good enough to even receive grace. Well, no, 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 no. We've all been called by that grace. Nobody in this room has accomplished it themselves. We'd all be failures if it was left to our own efforts. You look to the indicatives. You look to the salvation, the mercy of God who calls you to himself, who has saved you in Christ through the shedding of his blood because that will, that's what was required to cleanse you from your sin. Put your, put your hope in the revelation of Jesus Christ today. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the richness of your word and what's been revealed here to us. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would um, fill in all the gaps that have been left open through this message, Lord. Lord, I'd ask that um, if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with you, Lord, that uh, you do your work there. You draw them, call them, place them in Christ. Lord, give us grace in these things as we look at what it means to prepare our minds and to be sober in spirit, to not be conformed. We need to be looking to you all the time. And God, we, we, we appeal to your kindness and your mercy in all of these things. These are not things we can accomplish by ourselves. We, lay, we love you. We thank you for what you've given us in giving us your son. All our hopes are pinned on him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been good to be together today. I'm going to send you out in the hope of the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.
take a mile and wreck the story. I chase the future till I'm tired. I catch it, then it catches fire. I don't want to miss this day because it's a gift. I can't miss a chance to
And I am here to meet you on my knees When I'm with you my soul finds rest Cause I can leave it in your hands The day keeps coming Pulling me a million different ways I'm always running But never seem to catch the things I chase When I'm with you my soul finds rest Cause I can leave it in your hands Every sorrow I leave it in your hands Every sickness I leave it in your hands All my failures I leave them in your hands Amen I leave it in your hands So I'm laying the weight of all these burdens at your feet No more waiting Cause you've already won my victories In Jesus my soul finds rest Cause I can leave it in your hands Every promise I leave it in your hands Every healing I leave it in your hands And my future I leave it in your hands Amen I can leave it